The book is about why we ourselves have become so toxic to our own democracy. That's our special guest, Tom Nichols, noted author, scholar, and columnist. He's got some strong opinions. I was dispirited by the Democratic Party's circular firing squad that is one of their key skill sets. That thoroughly researches all sides of the issues. When you write, it's your responsibility to go find the voices that discomfort you and that would be the best argument against your own case. Both as a scholar and until 2018, a national security advisor on the Republican side. We were the first to defect from the Republicans because we were primarily concerned about national security and about putting the nuclear codes in the hands of an unstable sociopath. Join us today on The Purple Principle with Dr. Nichols, professor at the Naval War College. His latest book, Our Own Worst Enemy, places a good amount of blame for our weakening democracy on average citizens, we the people, for discounting civic values and responsibilities. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Jillian Youngblood, co-host here and executive director of the civic engagement group Civic Genius. I'm pretty much all ears today with just enough voice for an engaging discussion with one of the most expressive writers and uniquely positioned political commentators in the U.S. A working class kid who grew up near a major military command post in the 60s and 70s, Nichols is now a noted scholar of the Soviet Union and Putin's Russia. He's also consulted to the Department of Defense and taught at a number of prominent schools, including Dartmouth and the Harvard Extension. We started the interview asking Tom why this book emphasizes his pretty ordinary, if not downright humble, beginnings back in Chicopee, Massachusetts. I think it was important to tell people that, you know, I have not been an observer of changes in America from, you know, the top of an ivory tower or, you know, a comfortable suburb or whatever. I mean, I grew up uh, in a blue collar family in a blue collar town. And so I think I understand some of these issues kind of at the ground level. My hometown was, uh, is actually, I shouldn't say was, my God, it's still there. When I grew up there, it had two major industries, which was textiles and manufacturing. And the other was a giant air force base. And um, it's about a, maybe about a half an hour, 40 minutes from the University of Massachusetts, but as we used to like to say, it was about 40 minutes and a million miles. I mean, it was just, it was not a college town. It was a working town. My parents were working folks, Depression era, both high school dropouts, intelligent but not educated folks, avid readers, very involved in community stuff. And um, that's where I grew up. Yeah, it's. I think it's a really good backdrop to your work. And um, you tell a really touching anecdote about your dad and what he said observing the Obama-Romney campaign in 2012. Could you tell us a little bit about your dad's politics and what he said on that day? Sure. Um, you know, it's. I brought up my dad not as some model of civic virtue, but to point out that my dad was, in fact, a bigot. And, you know, a old school, white working class misogynistic guy with some, you know, pretty backward racial attitudes. And yet he had a fundamental respect for the constitutional system of the United States. My father, who grew up dropping racial epithets and telling race jokes, never spoke that way about Barack Obama, because no matter what else he thought Barack Obama was, Barack Obama was the president of the United States. And you just didn't do it. And toward the end of his life, he really surprised me. We were watching an Obama campaign rally and of course, my dad and I are both from Massachusetts, and we both like Mitt Romney. 
And I turned to my father and I said, I don't think Romney's going to you know, pull this off, dad. I said, it's gonna, this guy's pretty hard to beat. I think it's over. And my father just nodded. He looked at Obama and he said, he's a good man. They're both good men. We're going to be fine no matter what happens. And I really was hoping that we could get back to that. That's part of what I'm writing about is that we can get to a point where we're able to say that we have nominated good people and that the other folks have nominated good people with whom we disagree. I keep thinking of John McCain saying, you know, no, ma'am, he's a good family man with whom I have disagreements. I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. You had some formative experiences with civics and government working for local government, including, I think, at a pretty young age. You talked about helping people who were mainly men at that time sign up for unemployment benefits. And these were people who really wanted jobs. Did that help shape your early political thinking? Yeah. uh, The backstory there is that I was working my way through college. And uh, so my mom had mentioned that the new mayor was a really good guy and a young guy. And so I, you know, with all of the sort of self-possession of a 19 year old, you know, I walked in and I said, hi, you know, my mom and so, and so she's an alderman on the city council. And, um, and they knew each other socially. And I said, Hey, I, you know, I'll come in between my work hours and I'll help out. And so that really did affect my politics because I was 19 years old and I was sitting in a little office and men that were old enough to be my father and my grandfather were coming in and I was handing them forms and stuff. And they were saying, I don't want forms. I want a job. You know, I just want to go back to work. It actually, you would think that this would have at 19 or 20 made me a bleeding heart liberal. I mean, I mean, it was like a Bruce Springsteen song. You know, they're closing down the tire factory and the old guys are walking through the gates. And, you know, I mean, it was just like right out of, you know, a Springsteen album. Instead of Nebraska, you could have called it Chicopee. Like I sat in on the negotiations between the company and the unions. And um, I walked away from this not thinking well of unions who basically were like, we don't care what, we just want to make tires in the snow you know, in a hundred year old factory and the, you know, the company saying, whoop, that's not going to happen. If you want to understand how a 20 year old, you know, 1980 votes for Ronald Reagan, you have to have lived through the seventies. You have to have seen all that because what I wanted was someone who was optimistic about getting us out of this kind of gritty, gloomy horror that I grew up in called the 1970s. And there was disco and what, you know, I mean, my God. Just problems, really, all around. I keep saying, 1977, the Soviets could have had us. (laughs) They missed their window.
We're speaking with the author Tom Nichols on his most recent book, Our Own Worst Enemy, and the formative experiences behind it. Such as interning for the mayor in 1970s working-class Chicopee, Mass., while the town's major employer shut down. Which had Tom handing out unemployment forms to economically shell-shocked men in the community at the tender age of 19. And living near an important U.S. airbase that set him on a course to be a Russia scholar and Cold War national security Republican, before breaking with the party during the Trump administration. My hometown for a time was Strategic Air Command East Coast. We were a nuclear bomber base. The B-52s used to rattle my mom's china going over the house. I mean, it was cool when I was a kid and we could ride our bikes up to the base and watch these giant, you know, bombers going, because they were also flying missions directly to Vietnam from there. But then it was not cool when you got a little older and you went, oh, uh, now I know why they're doing this. And so I started studying more Russian and trying to figure out exactly what those bombers at my hometown were doing. And um, this created a different kind of politics for me that also pushed me toward being more conservative because I was a Cold War Reaganite in that sense. I had a very a typical career track after that. I learned Russian. I, I went to grad school at Georgetown. I consulted for the Pentagon and CIA. And I spent a lot of time going back and forth to the Soviet Union and then to Russia. And it made me very aware of what it would look like to lose your freedoms. Right. And your book begins with some advanced praise from the Russian chess master and political dissident, Gary Kasparov, who warns that taking freedom and democracy for granted is a fatal mistake. I'm upset, almost terrified, to see that Americans don't recognize the value what they used to have. So that Americans don't know how to value the rights and freedoms they have. And, um, you know... They don't recognize that they have responsibility to defend them. How did you come to know Kasparov? We met um, kind of by the magic of the internet because we were both found ourselves being kind of in overlapping pro-democracy arguments. Um, I reviewed Gary's book on Russia, and that started to overlap with those of us again, in the national security community who were warning that democracy in America was in trouble. And Kasparov was starting to warn that, you know, from what he knew about Russia, democracy in America was in trouble as well. But um, at the beginning of the Trump years, after I'd been doing a lot of writing about this, Gary sent me an autographed chessboard. So sometimes when people see me on television or on podcasts, they say, what's that chessboard behind you? And I keep it as an inspiration because it's a chessboard from Gary that says, keep up the good fight. That's a very cool memento. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm so interested in this. I run a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization called Civic Genius, and we're dedicated to overcoming polarization. How's that going? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just like faster than I ever expected. Um, (laughs) You know, we see a big divide. When we look at polarization, we see one of the major and growing divides is among people with different levels of educational attainment. And there's, you know, growing distrust in institutions, growing distrust in experts, educated people, I think, having as much distrust in experts sometimes. Can you talk about how you think that this whole question of how we think about experts can inform how we think about polarization? I'm really glad you asked this because it's a really good question. And I think education is where people misunderstand 
the polarization in America. And I tried to write about this in the new book, in Our Own Worst Enemy. I think people on the left in particular say, well, there's polarization because we're educated and smart and the people on the right are uneducated and dumb. Okay, there is some of that, but you know, make no mistake about it. There are plenty of uneducated Democrats who nonetheless are not enemies of the democratic system of government. The underlying problem is, to me anyway, is less one of what people know than whether or not they feel respected. What you get are middle class, usually men, who make plenty of money, but who feel that um, because someone's a writer at a magazine, I'm going to get this all the time now, um, you're looking down on them and you are disrespecting them and therefore you are the enemy. Your education and the job you have because of that education is a mark of being a social enemy. I mean, it's, it is really amazing that, you know, someone who has a lot of power on their local town council, they're a restaurant owner or a small business owner, they're worth well into six figures, and they're practically sending death threats to some 25-year-old who's writing for the Atlantic or the New York Times or the New Republic saying, you're the enemy, you're destroying my country, you have all this power. And I think the internet and social media brings those two cultures, which always existed, right? The kind of the, the campus culture and the kind of the middle American culture, and it forces them into a tight proximity with each other. A friend of mine summed it up beautifully, and he said, so what you're saying is the town and gown tensions of every college town in America are now the whole country. But do you have, I mean, do you have like a quick prescription for how we push back on that dynamic? Is it like everyone needs to get off social media to begin with? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when uh, all of the revelations about Facebook, you know, people ask me, Let's, how should we regulate Facebook? And my answer is, you can regulate Facebook anytime you want by not getting your news there. That's a big start right there. You know, it's like the, when people ask about how we regulate fast food joints so that people don't become obese. I'm like, well, you can you can always regulate that by not going there. That would be a good start, too. But I think the other problem is generational and it's not going to end. I mean, look, I'm sorry that when I was a kid, I mean, I'm not, I'm sorry, not sorry, as we say on social media, that when I was a kid, the evening news was 28 minutes delivered in soothing, authoritative tones by older white men. Well, now the news is sometimes, you know, a pretty hearty discussion with a very diverse group of people who are really going to piss off older white men. And that's just the way it goes. I mean, look, I've had that moment myself. I've turned on the TV and said, this kid just got out of college. Why is this an argument? I'm shaking my fist like, you know, Grandpa Simpson. Ah, you kids don't remember, you know, you know. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. Great insight from Tom Nichols on changes in our media and our demographics with a fist-shaking assist from Grandpa Simpson. In discussing U.S. polarization, there's nearly always mention of hatred boiling up on the right, but maybe not as much attention to lack of respect from the left for traditions, however flawed, that those on the right may value. Cable news runs on ratings, but ratings depend on emotion. For Fox opinion shows, that emotion is usually contempt for the libs, while on MSNBC, it's so often disdain toward the right. 
Our most recent guest, Sarah Longwell of the Republican Accountability Project, she captured how this polarity connects and conducts between the two ends of the political spectrum. As crazy as the Republicans are being, January 6th, everything else, it can feel a little far away from people. Like, they're not experiencing an insurrection at their house. But their kids are in school, and they are worried about what they're being taught, and it can feel close. But they don't understand the pronoun situation, and they don't want to get in trouble. And also when people say it's like they're like talking about birthing persons, they're like, what alien speak is this? Is mother not an okay word anymore? What is this crazy place we're living in? And that feels very immediate to people. That feels like they're living in a world they don't understand. For many Americans, middle-aged and older, this new world's not only more complicated, it's also more self-centered than the decades when Americans were somewhat united by the Soviet threat. That's a theme detailed by Tom Nichols in this new book, Our Own Worst Enemy, and in our discussion. Well, you know, the Cold War kind of imposed a seriousness on us just by virtue of the existence of the Soviet Union. I think for younger voters, it's hard to remember that we usually began presidential elections or early on in the process saying things like, is this someone you would want in charge of the nuclear button? That was just part and parcel of every election that the president was the commander in chief, that we were always 26 minutes away from Armageddon, that there were literally tens of thousands of nuclear weapons ready to go on, you know, 10 or 15 minutes notice. In the book, I quote Andy Basevich, who I agree with about almost nothing most days. But Andy had a great point when he noted that ending the Cold War for Americans was like winning the lottery. And that anybody who's followed the history of lottery winners can tell you winning the lottery never goes well. It ruins your life. You know, Reagan versus Carter, that was a serious argument about the direction of the country. Reagan versus Mondale, that's the last time you get a really serious foreign policy ad. And I'll, Rob, I'll just, you know, describe that for two seconds and then I'll get off this soapbox. The older folks will remember that the Republicans actually ran an ad about the bear in the woods representing Russia. And they said, some people think the bear is friendly. You know, others are worried that the bear is dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. And that was the Republicans saying, can you trust Walter Mondale to be tough with the old men in the Kremlin? Um, and I think that that, again, the end of the Cold War was like, ah, OK, we won. Everything's cool. You know, now we can complain about the economy in increasing cycles of complaint about our, our, live, our rising living standards. We really admire in the book how you showcase some of the best writing and thinking from both the left and the right. And we were wondering, was that a conscious balance? That's just who I am. That's how I write. When I worked in the Senate for the late John Hines of Pennsylvania, a moderate Republican from a big Northeastern state, I always tell folks that I was a Republican staffer and I had my own subscriptions to The Nation and Mother Jones. And people would come by my desk, you know, in the offices and what do you, dude, you know, what are you, the, the office commie? What's, you know, what's with the pinko stuff? And I'm like, look, I already know what you think. I said, I want to know what the other guys think. 
I want to see what the best argument against what I think looks like. And I think that's what that's also years of being a scholar that, you know, when people ask, what's a Ph.D. really do for you? One thing a Ph.D. does for you is it makes you write a book called your dissertation where a big part of that process is to go out and marshal the best arguments you can for why you are wrong. Yeah, important lesson for any writer. And speaking of great writers, Tom, you also reference in your book, the great W.B. Yeats poem, The Second Coming, has that famous line, the center cannot hold. A year ago, we did a couple of episodes on the 100th anniversary of the publication of the poem. So we want to play you a clip from the Notre Dame film and Irish studies professor, Briona Nick de Armada. She's conveying all that was going on in the world when Yeats wrote the poem. It was just after, of course, 1918, the end of the First World War. Uh, you had upheaval all over the world, particularly in the British Empire that was beginning to come apart at the seams. You had the Bolshevik Revolution. And that was something, again, that Yeats really, really was taken aback by. And he foretold only horror and totalitarianism and murder. Yeah, so objectively speaking, things seemed like a little bit worse in the world when Yeats wrote The Second Coming than right now. But is that where we're headed? Because we just objectively can't really assess situations anymore? Well, I think the center is always a hard place to be because it's not dramatic enough. It doesn't provide enough psychic income for people, you know, on the edges, on the far left, on the far right. The fringes are attractive because they're dramatic and heroic and they give meaning to your life. And that's when you can say to yourself, you know, I'm not just working at, you know, a department store. I am uncovering pedophile conspiracies or, you know, I am not just the assistant manager of a retail outlet. I am solving social justice and creating a new world of equality. And instead of saying, I'm just doing the hard work of keeping a democracy going every day by being informed and voting, which people just don't find fulfilling enough. They think it's beneath them. Yeah, well, we we have some, a few centrists in the country left, uh, 13 House Republicans who voted for infrastructure who are getting a lot of flack from the rest of the party. How, how do you feel about the position of those centrists, and were you encouraged at all by the passage of infrastructure, including 19 uh, Republican senators supporting it? I'm very heartened by the passage because we are way overdue for reinvesting in you know everything from roads to airports. I just went through LAX yesterday. Please rebuild it soon. But I was disheartened by the insanity of the process that surrounded it. I was dispirited by the Democratic Party's circular firing squad. With that said, I also thought, predictably enough, the bulk of the Republican Party declared all of this to be socialism, a word that no one you know, in the Republican rank and file understands or could explain in 10 seconds. Um, you know, Having spent the, my life studying the Soviet Union and Russia, I think I'm within my professional sphere of expertise to tell you that I think I know what socialism is, and I've seen it up close, and this is not socialism. So I'm glad it happened. I think it's good. Do I think it's going to hail a period of bipartisanship? Um, not in the least. I think those Republicans now have targets on their backs. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of targets on their back, primaries are coming up relatively soon. I believe uh, you very publicly left the Republican Party and you're an independent now. Most of our listeners are independent, unaffiliated voters, and most of our elections are decided in the primary. So what's an independent to do? What's the more important 
primary, in your estimation, the Republican or the Democratic side? I think that depends where you live. I live in Rhode Island. And a few years back, there was a Democratic primary coming up where I thought there was a pretty good candidate and a pretty bad candidate. And since my state allows it, I registered as a Democrat for a day and I voted in the Democratic primary because I thought, you know, we just deserved a better choice. What I really want to say to people out there is vote in the primary, whatever it is, because right now we are getting insane general election choices because the only people that vote in primaries are hyper-motivated partisans in the first place. The place where you can really have an outsized impact is if you show up in large numbers and vote in the primaries. Republicans have understood this. They primary each other. You know, they primary the people they think are the weak sisters out of their party pretty hard. Democrats just don't show up for this stuff. And yes, it's a bit of a hassle for you. You have to go figure out how to register. Oh, dear God. You know, you'll have to go online and find out whether or not you're registered to vote and which party you're registered to vote in and who's running in the primaries. Well, you know, if you care that much about democracy, do it. I'm sure you have a few Russian friends who would envy that. So our final question, uh, we ask all of our guests to show a bit of purple. In your case, since you're an independent, could you point to a particular Democrat and a particular Republican either living or dead, that you wish could uh, be around to make an impact going forward here? My first mentor in politics was the state rep I worked for who was a Democrat. And he is still alive and we talk regularly and we get together. And, um, you know, he, I mentioned him in the book, Ken Lemansky, a Catholic working class Democrat from my hometown. I didn't always agree with him, but he treated me both as a friend and as a mentee, and I have great respect for him. The Republican that I miss the most, of course, is John Hines, who I worked for and who died tragically while I was working for him. And I think if there had been more people like John Hines in the Republican Party longer, the course of history could have been changed because he was the kind of Republican I think most people today would think of as a centrist and a principled person. We, we do a lot of coalition building in the Senate, and, and certainly we're going to cooperate uh, with the Democrats. Uh, uh, they've cooperated with us in the past, and, and we won't uh, treat them any differently than, than they treated us. But uh, I think you cannot overemphasize. A lot of great stuff there from Tom Nichols, author of Our Own Worst Enemy, and a bit of Senator John Hines, the centrist, low-ego Pennsylvania billionaire who tragically died in a 1991 plane crash. Huge thanks to Tom Nichols today for the conversation and for another great book. He's one of the really sharp political observers out there and a gifted writer as well. Here's one of my favorite bits from the introduction. After surviving multiple global conflicts, including the Cold War, after defeating oppressive institutions like slavery at home and totalitarianism overseas, it seems the only challenges democracies cannot overcome are peace and prosperity. Or a passage that resonates with my work at Civic Genius. Democratic decline today is more subtle and gradual. It's also more dangerous because it comes from within and from our own choices rather than being imposed by force from the outside. Again, Dr. Tom Nichols' new and highly recommended book is Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. It's published by Oxford University Press. There's more info on our Purple Bookshelf at purpleprinciple.com. 
Next up on the Purple Principle podcast, we're talking to another skilled communicator, but one well-known from other channels of communications, meaning the cameras at CNN and the microphones at SiriusXM. Our guest will be Michael Smirkanish, the articulate, independent, firmly grounded presence on these mainstream networks and his own platform, Smirkanish.com. I think that this nasty tone which used to be national and then maybe on a state politics basis has now seeped into the local discourse all the way down to school board or local municipal elections. I think there have been a number of nasty exchanges at school board meetings pertaining to masks or vax policy, and they're probably driving reasonable people right out of the discourse. Reasonable people always welcome here at The Purple Principle. We hope you'll join us for that discussion, support us on Patreon or Apple Premium, and head to ratethispodcast.com slash purple to review us in your favorite podcast player. We're gearing up for a series on state-level polarization against the backdrop of the 2022 primaries, and your support is crucial to research and interviews for those episodes. Thanks for listening to The Purple Principle from the entire team here. Allison Byrne, Senior Producer for Audience Engagement, Kevin A. Klein, Senior Audio Engineer, Michael Falero, Associate Producer, Dom Scarlett and Grant Charrett, our very able research associates, original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney, The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge Production.